Hey, everybody, and welcome to our second lesson in the series that I am calling Little Known Women of the Bible. Last week, we learned about two midwives, Shifra and Pua, and today we're going to learn about Abigail. I've titled this lesson, A Lesson in Wise Thinking, Speaking, and Doing. Wow, I don't know about you, but that is a terrific goal for me. In fact, it's my prayer every day to help me to have wisdom in the things that I think and and feel and speak and do. Well, we're going to get this lesson from 1 Samuel 25. So all of the passages that I am reading about Abigail come from that chapter in Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 25. So let's learn a little bit about our characters as we enter this story. Abigail um, is described in in 1 Samuel as an intelligent and beautiful woman. Well, unfortunately, she was married to a sorry, good-for-nothing man named Nabal. (laughs) He was a homesteader who made his living raising sheep, and he was a very wealthy man, but the Bible describes him as surly and mean in his dealings. That tells us a lot, doesn't it? Well, enter King David. This is before he was king, and he was a part of this band of renegades who had been hanging out in the wilderness, hiding from King Saul, who was trying to kill David. Well, in their wanderings, they come across Nabal's property, where his flocks and his shepherds are. Well, David led this army of fighting men camping out in the wilderness with nothing to do, and so they decided to keep their eyes out on Nabal's property and his animals, and so they began to guard them. Well, David then had a need, and he'd been spending his time doing that, and I think he came up with a pretty interesting plan. He decided to go to the wealthy Nabal with a request, and he sent 10 of his men with a message to Nabal, and he said this, we've been watching your sheep and keeping them safe. And would it be that during this season of celebration that you would be so kind as to share some of your provisions with us? See, David and his men had a need. They needed to have some supplies and some food. And so they'd been taking care of Nabal's goods and his his property. So we thought this was a reasonable request. I think it was too. So David uh, gave an itemized list. He was polite. He made no demands. He simply suggested an offer of generosity. So what is Nabal's reply? We read in verse 10, who is this fellow David? Nabal sneered to the young men. Who does this son of Jesse think he is? There are lots of servants these days who run away from their masters. Now, did he really not know who David was? David was famous everywhere. But Nabal is insulting David. He shows who he really is. He's ungenerous, he's selfish, and he has a really bloated ego. In this next passage, I want you to listen for how many times the word I or my comes up in Nabal's next response. Verse 11 tells us, 
Should I take my bread and my water and my meat that I've slaughtered for my shearers and give it to a band of outlaws who come from who knows where? Well, there are about six eyes and mys in that one question. Well, Nabal ended up sending David's messengers packing and hurling insults at them. Now, the Bible doesn't record exactly everything that Nabal said, but when the messengers repeated his words to David, David was enraged. I would say he probably saw red. And here's what his reply is. Get your swords. And he strapped on his own sword and was ready to go into battle. It's kind of like saying, lock and load, men. Mount up, boys. We are ready to fight. He actually plans to wipe out Nabal. And do you know he sends not just 10, not 20, not 30, but 400 men to go after Nabal and fight and destroy Nabal and all of his property. Meanwhile... I guess we could say back at the ranch, one of Nabal's servants went to Abigail and told her what has transpired. And here is, I love how this is worded. It's in verse 17. You need to know this. Isn't it great to have people in our corner who tell us you need to know this and this is the rest of it and figure out what to do. For there is going to be trouble for our master and his whole family. He is so ill-tempered that no one can even talk to him. Oh, this brave servant that went to Abigail with those words. And this is where Abigail has her moment. She shines on the pages of biblical history. Before David unleashed his soldiers, Nabal's wife, Abigail, took matters in her own hands. Oh, I love a strong woman like that. When the man is behaving badly, she uses her wisdom. She uses her uh, strengths of her character and her personality to take things into her own hands. Scripture tells us in verse 18, Abigail wasted no time. But she didn't tell her husband Nabal what she was doing. Well, anyway, she was quick thinking and she was resourceful. And you know, I just imagine this. She grabbed up all of her longer burger baskets. <laughs> Do y'all remember those? Those beautiful baskets. Oh, I have some of them with those pretty cloth linings in it. And she loaded them with bread and meat and raisins and fig cakes and all the goods and all the supplies. And she, came, she saddled up on one of her donkeys and she headed out to meet David. Now there's a long ride there out there and I imagine she is doing some thinking, some pondering and praying. And when she saw David, she dismounted from that donkey and she bowed her face to the ground in a sign of respect for David, the future king of Israel. Verse 23 tells us that when Abigail saw David, she quickly got off her donkey and bowed low before him. She fell at his feet and she said, I accept all the blame in this matter. Wow, that, that took some humility, didn't it? My Lord, please listen to what I have to say. I know Nabal is a wicked and ill-tempered man. 
Please don't pay any attention to him. He is a, and listen to this very important word, because this is what we're going to key in on in our coaching lesson for today. He is a fool. He is a fool, just as his name suggests. Do you know that that's what the word Nabal means? It means fool. He was aptly named, wasn't he? But I never even saw the young men you sent. She said, I didn't even see these people that you sent to to make this request. Notice her approach. She packed those sandwiches that I teach you about. She approached with some really beautiful, kind words to David, and then she goes into what her request is, and she comes out with uh, other kind words to him. It's a word sandwich she packed. Look at how she pled her case. She affirmed him. She affirms him in the whole uh, series of uh, verses there, and, and she refers to him as the future king. And she begged forgiveness for her foolish husband. And she pleaded with David to spare the people. And she goes on in verse 28. She says, please forgive me if I've offended you in any way. Uh, Even when you are chased by those who seek to kill you, your life is safe in the care of the Lord your God. See, she knows that he represents the one true God. But the lives of your enemies will disappear like stones shot from a sling. Notice how she uses that beautiful imagery of a sling to describe what God will do with David's enemies. She said, God's going to take care of all those who oppose you. And she used his history, didn't she? Wow, wouldn't you be impressed by that? I love how she must have used that time traveling from the time she got the information. The stimulus came to her, the information. Here it is. This is what's happened. Now she's riding the donkey through treacherous ground to get to David, and she is plotting. She's planning. She is thinking. She's writing her script. She is asking for God to give her direction. That's how we use our time wisely in an uncomfortable, a terrible, stressful situation. She was very wise. And what she did was remind David how God had helped him with Goliath and how God would help him now with the fool Nabal. She lifted David up instead of beating him down. Now, David was clearly had been in the wrong when he just in a fit of his own rage got the 400 men together to storm out toward Nabal. But Abigail wanted to guide him into the right way, and that's what a wise woman does. She didn't do it by being negative. She did not emphasize to David how wrong and angry and stupid he was being though he was, in fact, being that way. Instead, she emphasized David's calling, his purpose, and the general integrity of his life, and she simply asked him to consider the situation. Now, everything about her approach might not have been perfect. You know, she did criticize her husband to another man, but was she speaking truth? Yes, And she obeyed God rather than man. She takes blame for something that wasn't her fault. Think about that. You know, I would struggle with that. Many of you might struggle with that too. That would take a lot of humility. And it really wasn't necessary. She didn't need to take responsibility. But here, look at the situation. Was that what was needed to save her husband and her livelihood? 
and the farm and the servants? Yes, that is what it took. That's a great humility it took. If Abigail had not intervened, Nabal and lots of innocent people would have died. Well, here's David's response to her. It's found in verse 32. Praise the Lord, the God of Israel, who has sent you to meet me today. Thank God for your, and look at these two words, good sense. Good sense is wisdom. Bless you. If you had not hurried out to meet me, not one of Nabal's men would still be alive tomorrow morning. And then David accepted her present, you know, all those goods in the Longaburger baskets. He thanked her for that, and he vowed, we will not kill your husband. Now, David had reacted emotionally to Nabal instead of responding reasonably. Isn't that where we find ourselves many times? David did not use the gap. That brief moment that God gives us between the time the stimulus comes to us and the time we respond. David had misfired. He went straight to reaction. Now, do we find ourselves in that situation sometimes that when we get information and somebody comes to us and maybe they're outraged about something or maybe they speak an unkind word or something that's not truthful or whatever it is, and then we pounce, we react, And that is what David did. That is also what Nabal had done. Uh, He had a reaction instead of a response, and so did David. The one who responded well was Abigail, who used that gap. That time God gives us to process and to think before we actually respond to a situation. Was David's reaction, his uh, response to what had happened to Nabal on the right track? Yes, he should have been angry and incensed, but what he acted out on was wrong. But his response to Abigail was just right. It was respectful, it was filled with praise, and it was complimentary. Okay, the story does not end there. So on verse 36, we learn that Abigail arrived home. She found that Nabal Look at what the man was doing, was throwing a big party and was celebrating like a king. He was very drunk. So she didn't tell him anything about her meeting with David until dawn the next day. Isn't it important how timing is? Very important to get the timing figured out. That wasn't the time to tell her him what she had done, nor to berate him. In the morning, when Nabal was sober, his wife told him what had happened. Well, we're not told what emotions went through Nabal when he heard Abigail's account of her encounter with David, but here is what we do know. As that passage continues, it says, as a result of what he had heard, he had a stroke, and he lay paralyzed on his bed like a stone. About 10 days later, the Lord struck him and he died. Now let's look at that situation. There he was, Nabal, holding a feast in his house, living up to his name, a fool. His life was in imminent danger. His wife knew it. His servants knew it, but he didn't know it. He eats and gets drunk as if everything is going great and he doesn't have a care in the world. And 10 days later, he is dead. So the fool dies, 
And the story doesn't end there. In verse 39, when David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, (laughs) praise the Lord. (laughs) He said, praise the Lord. I mean, this is what I'm adding. The fool is dead. (laughs) Praise the Lord. The fool is dead. And then here's what scripture says. Okay, wait for it. The Then David sent messengers to Abigail to ask her to become his wife. Wow. When the messengers arrived at Carmel, they told Abigail, David has sent us to take you back to marry him. Okay, now just imagine you're in the situation. What do you do? What do you do? Who do you talk to? You gather your girlfriends together? Do you call mom and daddy? Do you uh, get on your knees? What do you do? Do you laugh it off? What do you do? Here is what it says she did in verse 41. She bowed low to the ground and responded, I, your servant, would be happy to marry David. She would be happy to. Hey, can you imagine going from Nabal to David? I think that's a pretty good catch if you ask me. If you've been in my groups for a while, you know how much in love I am with David. Oh my goodness. Ever since I saw uh, the Michelangelo interpretation of David, I have been in love with him. Oh, what a man who uh, who had the heart of God. Oh, now he made mistakes. He sure did. But listen, Abigail got a champ when she got him. Uh, Now, it was not without problems, but here's what she did. She said, I, your servant, would be happy to marry David. I would even be willing to become a slave washing the feet of his servants. And then the next word says, quickly getting ready. She took along five of her servant girls as attendants, mounted her donkey, and went with David's messengers, and so she became his wife. Now, I'm not sure what the traditional period of mourning was in those days, but I don't think Abigail observed it, do you? Abigail quickly got on a donkey, and off she went with her five merry maids and became his wife. And you know what David got? He got a wife. And he got all of Nabal's property and possessions. Oh my goodness, is this a win-win for everybody or what? And Abigail, thanks to the, the mercy of the Lord, got rid of a foolish husband. But here's what the rest of the story is, or the next part. David took... Um, Ahinoam of Jezreel as his wife also, and he had two wives. Oh my goodness, what did Abigail get herself into? You know, David didn't always make the best choices. And, and even though there was not uh, anything to forbid David from doing that, it was not God's plan. It's not God's plan for us to get into family issues and troubles on our own. And those issues would continue to plague David because he never really observed God's perfect plan for marriage and families. And there was a lot of heartache that came from that. Now, I do want us to look at all three of our characters to see what we can learn from them and their decisions and their interactions and their responses. So we're looking at... A person who is foolish, one who is wise, and one who is a blend, David. So, what would we call that? He is a blend of of wise and foolish, so would we call him woolish? (laughs) 
<laughs> Do we call him Fize? Or how about Wise-ish? And I, I kind of like that one. Let's, we're going to go with Wise-ish. And so we're going to look at these three and their character traits along this continuum of foolish to wise. And as we're doing, I want you to be thinking about where you fall on that continuum of foolish on one end of the continuum and wise on the other end of the continuum. And this means in all of your thoughts, your feelings, your words, and your actions on all of that. Where do you fall? We're going to look at Abigail first and her wisdom. Well, first of all, she recognized the need to humble herself, and she interceded for her people. She showed some courage, didn't she, when she risked her life. See, she couldn't tell her husband uh, about it, and that was a risk on her part, going to meet David was a risk. She had to ride down a mountain ravine on a donkey uh, in order to get to David. Now, okay, so she may have had some experience doing that, but still it was a risk. And of course, she had all those longer burger baskets that she was carrying, trying to balance all of that too as she went to meet David. So uh, that was pretty risky. Now, let me tell you my experience with a donkey. I rode a donkey up the rocky hillsides of Petra in Jordan uh, on my last trip to the Holy Land. Now, Jordan is a city that's carved out of rocks. And so when we arrived there at Petra, we were met by groups of Bedouins uh, standing beside their donkeys, all urging us to ride uh, to the monastery, which was at the top of the rocky hill. So, eager to take the challenge, my friend Lisa and I saddled up each on a donkey. We each had a Bedouin guide, but let's remember we are still on donkeys who have a mind of their own. And, and I had barely saddled up when my donkey was off and going. And what a ride up the ledges and the rugged steps all around people and having some slips and slides all the way to the top. <laughs> now, that was rough, an experience I will never forget, and I'm so glad I did it, but it had its moments. Now, I had a guide, but Abigail was all on her own. Yes, she showed courage. Let's look at things she did. Wise Abigail. So I'm going to give you some bullet points here. She spoke words of the Lord. See, she was aware of the good David had done, and she spoke those words of praise and encouragement to him. As you're listening to these things that I'm sharing, try to think of ways and situations where you can apply these same principles of wisdom. The second bullet point is she acted quickly to resolve a problem. She acted quickly, yet she was thoughtful and well-spoken in that. Next, she accepted responsibility for the situation. It was a situation that came about in her family, and she was responsible. Next, she was a peacemaker. Isn't that what we need to be in, in family situations and all relationship issues? She distanced herself from Nabal's bad attitude. See, she didn't have to own that. She distanced herself from it. Next, she recognized David's place in God's plan. See, she knew, didn't she? She knew uh, she had biblical knowledge, and she used it. She recognized it. And then she spoke and acted 
with fear. And our lesson last week was about fear of the Lord. And she acted with fear of the Lord, which we agreed really means awe and wonder of the Lord. So that's wise Abigail. Now let's look at foolish Nabal. Now Nabal actually means fool, so he is living up to his name. His marriage to Abigail was probably arranged because like me, maybe you were wondering, how'd she get herself in this mess? Why would anybody choose a fool to marry? Well, some people do. And that is a situation that you probably regret and you have to really do a lot of workarounds in that relationship. Abigail was probably in an arranged marriage. He had inherited his wealth and his position as a descendant of a powerful and noble house in the family of Caleb. So he probably would never have earned his wealth on his own, and he probably would never have attracted a wife based on his character or his personality. And so he had been given this title. And so he was also known as the meanest man in the Bible. Okay, you get that? It was one of the meanest men in the Bible. He was a fool from the Bible. And from the start to the end of this story, we do not hear one good thing about Nabal. Not one. His faults aren't that he is particularly wicked or deceitful or bloodthirsty or proud, but here is what it is. He is just not a very nice person. He's not kind. He's not generous. He's not good. Do you see how that can define a fool? which is very different from the obvious of wicked people and deceitful people. He just wasn't a good person. Here are some of his foolish traits. So look at these bullet points. He shows self-centered arrogance. He speaks from emotion and not rational thinking. He goes on a tirade. And then this point, he hoards his wealth instead of sharing it. Here's another point. He ignores wise counsel. See, he was too much of a fool to take advice from his wise servants or his wife. And so everybody had to go behind his back. Can you imagine how you would have to walk on eggshells around a ball? And then another point, he appears to have thought his wealth and power was enough to protect him from anything that could happen from David coming after him with hundreds, hundreds of armed men. He showed no curiosity about David and who he was and what he stood for. He didn't, he didn't, do, he didn't appreciate this idea that you need to stay on the good side of people with weapons. He didn't say, especially somebody who was going to be in the royal line. And then here's the ultimate, Nabal defied God. He defied God in the way that he treated David by refusing to provide necessities and goods to David's hungry and deserving men. Well, now let's move to David, and we're calling him wise-ish David. And I'm going to give you some bullet points and decide which of these are wise And which of these are foolish? First of all, David's initial approach to Nabal was thoughtful and reasonable. Okay, I guess we would call that, yes, wise. Next, he had a viral 
impulsive reaction to Naval's rejection. Oh yeah, that's the mark of a, what? Fool, foolish behavior. Next, he is vengeful and ready to return evil for evil. Is that wise? No, that's a foolish trait. Next, David engages in some negative self-talk here. He's angry and he's venting. He's, he's even throwing himself a pity party. You know, he says, uh, it's all been useless watching over this man's property. He paid me back evil for good. Well, I'll get him now. Do you see that negative self-talk? Are we ever guilty of that? Because if so, that comes on the foolish end of the spectrum. He didn't change his thinking. And then the last point here is he did appreciate the wisdom of Abigail, which was more than Nabal had going for him, wasn't it? (laughs) Okay, so now those are our three characters. Let's figure out what we can learn from Abigail and her moments of wisdom and for uh, the moments when David displayed wisdom. So I'm going to ask you some questions to consider. What do you do when you find yourself in a potentially testy relationship situation? When you're dealing with a fool, when you are dealing in an uncomfortable situation, somebody's in, in their weaknesses, somebody is... Um, coming at you with lies or harsh words or they're hurting your feelings, what do you do? How do you know how and when to respond? And how can you move from foolish behavior to wise-ish and then on to wise behavior? Well, I'm going to give you some strategies to use. The first thing to do is to do as Abigail did, and that is to press pause. Use the gap God gave you to stop, to think, to shut your mouth, to pray. First thing is press pause. Number two is to conduct a pre-mortem session. Now, you've heard of postmortem, when you go and you discover what had happened previously, we're going to do a pre-mortem. And that's we're going to try to figure out what might go wrong before it's too late. We figure it out beforehand. Well, this involves asking yourself or somebody else who might be around you, a trusted or wise person, about what you're getting ready to say or do. Because you want to figure out, oh, if I say so-and-so, this might happen. And I want to be ahead of it and not behind it. So this helps you uh, to pause and consider the consequences when you do a pre-mortem. And so while you're doing that, you assess the stress. Assess your own stress level. We're going to look at that in uh, just a moment. And then you make a decision. You make a decision after you've done all of the previous. So while you're assessing, you're going to be looking at your own anxiety and your own stress, and you're going to be seeing how it work, can work for or against you. And Nabal could certainly have done a pre-mortem and have figured out what he should and shouldn't do, but he was a fool. So that wasn't going to happen, was it? But you look at the stress level of all of them. Each were experienced anxiety about what they were facing but they all use stress differently. Look at the conversation between Nabal and David. They didn't manage their anxiety. 
So the body and the mind shifted into a state of negative and toxic stress, and they became reactive and foolish. That's what we want to avoid. Now, Abigail was involved in the same situation, but she managed her stress. She had paused. She was doing a pre-mortem. She was looking at her stress level, her anxiety, and, and she put it to good use. Notice how many times she moved quickly. She let her stress work for her instead of against her. She said, yes, I am a little bit amped up here. My heart's racing. I need to figure out what I can do that is good while I'm getting this, uh, this uh, bolt of energy. What can I do with it that is a good thing? She thought, th thought through the consequences. That's a pre-mortem. So what can you do if you're caught in a similar stressful situation? This is what you do. In your pause, you're going to check in with yourself. You're going to check in uh, in your pre-mortem to gauge your current mindset. You're going to see if you are in a positive stress state or a negative stress state. So if you're in a positive stress state, then you're going to feel hyper alert. Now, I know from my own personal experience, that is where I go if I am called on to do something. If, if I am called on to think quickly in a stressful situation, or if someone calls me or, and asks me, I'm in an emergency situation, I don't know what to do, can you help me? And then I begin to use the, the stress that I'm feeling and the pressure I'm feeling to think clearly and to help someone. Um, many of you know that um, our dear Susan, um, who is the membership chair of our WOW Bible study, was choking, and she looked at me and gave me that universal signal for choking, and um, I turned her around, and I did the Heimlich on her, and I can only say that that was the Holy Spirit working within me to feel hyper alert in that moment. That was an example of a positive stress state. Now, we can have the same things, course, feelings coursing through our body, this, uh, this anxiety we're feeling, and, and we can both be having those things going through our body, but we can either turn them for good or not. So when we are in a negative stress state, we take the same situation and, and become overwhelmed. Uh, emotions get out of control. There is chaos reigning in the brain. Uh, the heart is palpitating, and sometimes it's so Tense that intense that you can't breathe. You feel as if you can't breathe. And so that's where the same situation might cause uh, you to go into a negative stress state. Now, I've been there too. You know, I'm, I'm working hard to overcome those so that I can use the stress for good. But if you find yourself in a negative stress state, first of all, you need to get the breathing under control. So you'd practice the three, four, five breathing that I've taught many times. Breathe in for three, hold it for four, blow out like you're blowing through the straw for five. And that helps to get the blood flow going to the part of your brain that helps you to be reasonable. And then when you're calm, that's when you can begin this decision-making process. The decision could be that 
you can't act in the moment. Now, this is obviously not if you're trying to save somebody's life and do CPR or uh, the Heimlich maneuver. This is obviously when it's another situation like Abigail was dealing with. So you might say, I need more information. I need more time. I need more input so that you would avoid reacting to something. And it could be uh, that you just become more decisive and that you, after you've thought through things and say, okay, I, need, I know I need to act and I'm not going to procrastinate things, but I'm going to get myself into a situation where I can act appropriately. Well, Abigail did a pre-mortem. She checked in with herself. She thought through her consequences and she used her travel time wisely to prepare uh, her speech to David. So that those are that's information about how to use the stress that comes in front of you for good and to act wisely by pausing in the moment conduct, conducting a pre-mortem where you're assessing your stress level and getting that under control and then making decisions. So um, now when you kind of get that under control then it will be helpful in dealing with a fool. Now, just out there, those who are listening, <laughs> nod your head if you have ever dealt with a fool. You know what? Telekinetically, I can see. We've got a lot of people nodding heads, dealing with a fool. He, and now, if you're struggling a little bit of how that looks, here's the definition of a fool. One who shows himself. Okay, I'm just going to use the him. I can use herself. Either one works by words or actions to be deficient in judgment, sense, or understanding. Here's the rest of it. A stupid or thoughtless person. How about that? Anybody dealing with a fool? We've all dealt with fools in, in our, our life. Um, a biblical fool we're going to be talking about today, there are many scripture passages that define a fool, is one who is such a narcissist that he sees no need to change, and therefore he does not. Now, I've learned so much about biblical fools from uh, my friend, uh, Jan Silvius, who is an author, and she's a counselor and coach and lives in Chattanooga. And she uh, has outlined the profile of a fool, and she's used passages from Proverbs to substantiate it, and it's in her book, Foolproofing Your Life. And so I'm going to share with you some of the things that she has written about that. And here are the characteristics she gives of a fool. I'm going to give you the characteristic, and then I'm going to give you a Bible verse that goes with that from Proverbs. If you're not getting my handout, please message me and let me know so that I can get the handout for you. A fool is always right. Proverbs 12:15 says the way of a fool seems right to him. And the next is he trusts in his own heart. Proverbs 28:26 says he who trusts in himself is a fool. Next, he doesn't learn from past mistakes and is chronically foolish. Proverbs 26.11 says, As a dog returns to its vomit, so a fool repeats his folly. Next, he doesn't want to change. Proverbs 27.22 says, Though you grind a fool in a mortar, 
grinding him like grain with a pestle, you will not remove his folly from him. Do you get that? You cannot change a fool. He doesn't want to change. He doesn't see the need to change. He is not changing. Do you hear that? He is not changing. Now, of course, we know that through divine intervention, anybody can change. But that person has to be willing and has to recognize a need and receive the power of God to do that. A fool does not, just like Nabal did not. The next point, he will not listen to reason. Proverbs 23, 9 says, Do not speak to a fool, for he will scorn the wisdom of your words. You can't speak to them about wise things because he's just going to throw those back at you. Next, he is motivated by anger. Proverbs 29, 11 says, A fool gives full vent to his anger. Next, he is opinionated. A fool finds no delight in understanding, but delights in airing his own opinions, Proverbs 18.2. See, he likes the sound of his own voice, and he delights hearing his own opinion out there. And the last point, he invites violence. Proverbs 18.4 says, A fool's lips bring him strife, and his mouth invites a beating. So, according to Jan, a fool, short of divine intervention, is not changing. This is who she is. This is who he is. A fool is often described as a narcissist. Narcissistic personality disorder causes a person to experience an inflated sense of self-importance. A need for excess admiration and attention causes troubled interpersonal relationships and low or no empathy for other people. So do you know somebody like this? Well, if so, here are some words of wisdom for you. Again, these are found in Scripture. First of all, watch who you associate with. Proverbs 22 says, do not make friends with a hot-tempered man. Do not associate with one easily angered, or you may learn his ways and get yourself ensnared. Next, don't rescue a fool. Proverbs 19.19 19 says, A hot-tempered man must pay the penalty. If you rescue him, you will have to do it again. Is that similar to enabling people? I think it probably is. The next point is warning. There is danger ahead. Proverbs 13, 22 says, He who walks with the wise grows wise, but a companion of fools suffers harm. A friend of fools, you're going to have a lot of hurt. You're going to have a lot of heartache. And next point is stay away from a fool. Proverbs 17, 12 says, Better to meet a bear robbed of her cubs than a fool in his folly. That says it pretty well, doesn't it? It's not always possible to stay away from a fool because he may be your husband. It may be your wife. 
if we have men in the audience, maybe a son or a daughter, a father, a mother, a brother, or a sister. It's not always possible to stay completely away. But Jan Silvius gives us some, some tips, some key strategies for dealing with a fool that you love and must live with. First of all, detach. Proverbs 14, 7 says, go from the presence of a foolish man. So detach means to back off far enough to leave the presence of an angry person until the anger has passed. So you're not in, present, in, in the presence of this person while the person's angry. You can remain in the same room and emotionally detach if necessary, if, if uh, hurtful words are coming, but you remind yourself of the truth of God's words, which are going to protect and, and guard your emotions and your feelings. But you detach. If you cannot physically leave, then you detach emotionally from this person while they're on their tirade. And treat them like a stranger. First of all, detach. Second, treat them like a a stranger. Jan says, be kind, but don't get involved in their stuff. And don't let them get involved in your stuff. So let's look at some strategies when you want to avoid this angry showdown with a fool. Every time you are confronted with the fool's anger, imagine yourself in a castle. We know that every castle has a moat where the dangerous creature lives. And over the moat is a drawbridge. You control that drawbridge. You are the one who allows entrance to your castle. So by going to the castle, you are deciding that you will not let the fool get to you. You keep saying, no, you're not getting to me. No, you're not getting inside my emotions. You're not going to get stuck in my thinking pattern. You're emotionally turning away. This is not a passive approach. It's actually positive, it's intentional, it's assertive, it is proactive. You're removing the fool's power over you. So while you're in your castle, what do you say and what do you do? Well, here are some things. You might have to say, I can't talk with you while you're angry. But you say it in an even measured tone. It's in the castle where we detach. We treat the fool as a stranger. Think about it. You're typically kind and polite to strangers, but we don't let them in emotionally. (laughs) Think of the person at Walmart. You're not letting them in emotionally to you. They're a stranger, but you're polite to them. We share only the information needed to conduct the business at hand. Jan says you feed him with a long-handled spoon. So you keep a distance. You might have to talk about common, ordinary things like the weather. You may have to turn and walk away. You may have to be a broken record and repeat your stance on something. No, I can't do that. I can't do, I'm not doing that. No, that's not going to work for me. No. But even in the castle, we show kindness and not anger because we're emotionally detached. Remember our responsibility found in Romans 12, 18 says, if possible, so far it depends on you be at peace with all men. And think of being in the castle as being in your strong tower where Proverbs 18.10 tells us the name of the Lord is a strong tower. 
the righteous runs into it and is safe. We go to the Lord and we say, Father, I cannot deal with this fool right now. I need your words and your wisdom to cope. Help me to know how to emotionally detach and still be kind. The next point is to forgive them. Ephesians 4 verses 31 and 32 says, Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. Forgiveness means you let go of the bondage. It does not mean you condone or approve the behavior. It doesn't even mean that trust is rebuilt or that a relationship is restored. It does not mean that the other person even receives your forgiveness. This can just be happening inside you. But what it does is release you from the bitterness and it sets you free to enjoy your life. The last point is to pray for them. Romans 8, 26 says in the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. Instead of telling God how to fix it, God, you ought to do this, and God, why aren't you doing this? And why can't you do this in the fool? We should actually be quiet before the Lord and allow God to work in his time and his own way. And we might be praying for God to give us wisdom on our next step in that relationship, whatever that might mean. Our prayers may be quite self-serving if we ask God to zap our fool with a lightning bolt right between the eyes, right? <laughs> You know, that's what we might want often. But let's go before the Holy Spirit in our weakness and let that Spirit intercede for us with the words that we just cannot express. I pray that this lesson has been helpful to you as you examine your own life and your own wisdom or your own foolishness. And I hope that it is an inspiration to take a pause, to think, to do a pre-mortem, to assess your stress, and then make a wise decision in what you are thinking, feeling, saying, and doing. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your wisdom, and we pray that we will feel the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit in our own lives to give us your words and your wisdom in every circumstance that we face. And in doing so, we will be a wise woman. It's in the name of your son, Jesus, I pray. Amen.